Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools, and we're here every Saturday at this time, 12 noon, to defend and to promote public education. And why do we do this? Well, I had a phone call this week and I was told in no uncertain terms that I didn't always define the most important thing about public education, which is that it is the best. It is the best form of education that a country can have. And how right our caller was, and it was lovely to hear him, because he he hadn't been ringing me for a few weeks, and I was wondering what was happening to him. So there you are. It's good to go to air and know that there is at least one person listening, although I know that there are a lot more of you out there. Now, when we talk about public education, you might notice if you're a regular listener that I define it every week. So as well as saying it is the best, I would like to say that it has to be public in purpose and outcome. And I'm sorry, I also think that it should be The most important thing about it is that it is publicly accessible. It is open to every child. It can't be a public school unless it is a school which is open to every child. It can't be public education unless all of the schools in the education system are open to every child, regardless of their background, their their parents' background, their parents' ability to pay, their religious affiliations, you name it. There should be no criteria for rejecting any child from a publicly funded public education system. It should also be public in ownership and control, not public-private, putting the taxpayers in hock for uh, generations to come. And it should also be the only one that is publicly funded uh, because it's the only one that can be public accountable. And if we had genuine representative democratic governments at both the state and the federal level, then they would make sure that we had a first-class public education available to every citizen's child in this country. Now, this is the ideal that we are working towards and we make no apology for it. But we have a webpage. You can find out more about us on our webpage at www.adogs.info. And there are two press releases this week. I will read the first one and Dale will tell you about the second one. And we're up to press release 632. And this is it. Political appointments make for lousy administration. 
Public education needs committed and experienced public servants. In the last 150 years, public education has survived because its founding fathers in the 19th century identified and solved at least two of its major problems. Problem one was financial security, and it still is. This, the founding fathers realised, was only possible if public education was publicly funded, and so they introduced income tax in the 1860s, and it was publicly funded from taxpayer funds. This funding, however, was only secure if the opposition to public education, namely private religious monopolies, were not publicly funded. As a result, our public education systems thrived for approximately 80 years when state aid to the private religious sector was withdrawn. They were second to none in the world and American educationists used to come here and admire them because of the level of equality which our children enjoyed. But since 1969, when direct grants were introduced, public education has been systematically undermined. They were the direct grants, I'm sorry, to, to private schools. Supporters of public education and academics will not succeed until they stop romancing about needs policies and take a strong no-state-aid position like the dogs. And we have never compromised on this position. Now, problem two was the administrative problem. The founding administrators, like William Wilkins in New South Wales and Tate in Victoria, realised that only a strong centralised administration could ensure equality of educational opportunity for all children and adequate support and supervision of teachers in a public education system. A centralised administration is also the only one that can provide proper accountability for public funds to a representative parliament. Now, without Politically neutral, experienced administrators, democratic representative government becomes an impossibility. There's no way that a politician can be given fearless advice. But since the advent of state aid and the growth of a highly centralised Catholic education administration which lobbies governments behind closed doors... Centralised administrations of public education have been under constant attack. Many have been taken over from within by private school interests and this, dear listeners, is what's happened in Victoria. It has happened to a lesser extent in New South Wales and Hobart. Administrations have been decentralised over the last 30, 40 years and schools and teachers have been isolated into private-public partnership buildings. Inequalities have increased exponentially and school principals and teachers are placed under crushing workloads in places like Victoria. So parents have watched in disbelief as profiteering and corruption have been uncovered by IBAC here in Victoria in the rump of what was once a proud, experienced bureaucracy. So dogs are suggesting, in fact we are telling you, that the only way forward for public education is to go back and solve these problems again. We have to withdraw state aid to private religious schools and to re-establish a committed and experienced centralised administration. 
Now, there's some very interesting um, things that are occurring on various uh, places in the internet, uh, which give you the uh, very distinct impression that some people are waking up as to what is happening. In the conversation, which is a very interesting academic journal, which you can uh, use as you see fit, there's no um, censorship on this one, or no copyright, uh, a professor, Chris Orlick, who is a visiting professor in the Institute for Governance and Policy Analysis at the University of Canberra, uh, has written an interesting article and he is realising the dangers of politicisation of the public service because he realises too that the democracy depends on an independent and fearless public service and a strong public education system. Uh, these are some of the things that he has to say. There are a few hard and fast conventions involved in cultivating an independent government administrative system. Yet there are traditions or principles that many see as fundamental to good governance or even to an effective democracy. Straying from these leads to accusations that the government is politicising the public service, but what that means isn't exactly clear. It might suggest the appointment of party political representatives to public positions or the appointment of known government sympathisers to public positions or some other way of preventing professional civil servants from providing frank and fearless advice to ministers. But despite the lack of agreement about what politicisation means and its significance, there's almost universal criticism criticism at the moment of governments that stray from the principles that underpin neutrality. And the accusation of politicisation often accompanies appointments made by an incoming government. These may be to departments, they can be to government agencies such as the ABC, they can be to integrity agencies these days, such as the Ombudsman, and more often you have the appointment of former politicians to diplomatic postings. Well, we've seen that this week with Mr Hockey, of course. Uh, now, the Australian Public Service operates near to the model of a professional public service, or it did, where it serves successive governments without fear or favour. Changes of government typically mean that experienced professional secretaries have remained to pilot their new ministers through. But there have been aberrations to this. In 1996, some of our listeners might remember the Night of the Long Knives that dispatched six departmental heads. That was when Mr uh, Howard came into power. But most governments in past decades have relied on a cadre of professional civil servants to head departments and agencies, even after the power changes hands. Listeners, this certainly was not the case when Mr Kennett came to government in the 1990s in Victoria, where there was a, a takeover of the education department and he brought a gentleman down from the Northern Territory to close our schools, our public schools, 
Um, I can't even remember his name now, but I know that people called him. He was not a particularly handsome man and he was called the Elephant Man. But um, the education department was gutted by Kennett in those days. And I think this has to be said. This is not democratic. It never was democratic and it never can be democratic. And uh, one wonders what kind of advice the Minister for Education is getting. Problems arise when appointees pay little attention to frank and fearless and see their role largely as doing the Minister's bidding. And that's stretching the notion of responsiveness too far, according to Professor Orlick. And now, if you are a civil servant, and some of our listeners may have been, and I've certainly been a public servant, uh, there's a tradition that you're required to act in an impartial matter. That is not to privilege particular interests over others and to behave in a politically neutral way. And it's especially significant in relation to government agencies that investigate and adjudicate on complaints about and mistakes that are made by the government. So you've got problems and uh, they've set up integrity agents and you've had IBAC, which has uh, worked. And you also have the Auditor-General. The Auditor-General is actually very, very important. But here in Victoria, the Auditor-General who was here, Mr Doyle, was going to write a report on the accountability or lack of it uh, from the Catholic Education Office. But we haven't. this hasn't seen the light of day because uh, Mr Doyle was undermined and has resigned and all we have at the moment is an acting Auditor-General. So although Professor Orlick says that we should avoid cynicism, uh, I hope that he, and you will forgive me, if one becomes very, very cynical about these matters. Um and he, he re- refers to various issues that have arisen in areas other than education. But he, what he has to say is actually very interesting. Now, he's suggesting that there should be a public appointments commission also, but he doesn't seem to get to the point that between the public service and the minister these days, you have your political advisers. There is a middle rank. And any public servant who wants to give frank and fearless advice to the minister, even advice which is political dynamite, has to run the gauntlet of the political advisor. And very often their frank and fearless advice can see the rubbish bin. There are different rubbish bins in the public service, I assure you. Uh, But I'd now like to turn to something that's been going on in Massachusetts, in New York, about where corruption in the public service, in the administration, can lead. And this is about the dark money behind the school privatisation in Massachusetts. Uh, this information is on a very interesting web page um, 
that is run by Diane Ravitch, who is a public education promoter in the United States. She started off on the other foot, actually. She was a privatisation expert, and then she decided that public education represented the best way forward, and she runs a very, very good um, blog indeed. Now, the Massachusetts Jobs with Justice has released a well-documented report on the dark money behind a shadowy group called the Families for Excellent Schools. FES is leading the campaign for more charter schools in Massachusetts. It flies under a flag because the families are not representing the families of Boston or the families that need excellent schools. FES is a gross deception. They're representing hedge fund managers and other wealthy individuals. And their idea of excellent schools is Exeter, Andover, Deerfield Academy, Groton, Sidwell Friends and other elite schools that their own children attend. But these are not the excellent schools they want for the children of Massachusetts. They prefer no excuses schools where discipline and uniformity produces higher test scores. And in the battle between Eva Moscovitz and the Mayor de Blasio over the expansion of the charter sector... FES came up with nearly $10 million to beat the mayor. Now, that's not the kind of money that one grows in needy communities, but it is the kind of money one collects with a few phone calls to Wall Street movers and shakers. So this JWJ report tear, tore away the veil about from, from the FES, this group, revealing where the money comes from. But up until now, it had pretended to be just another grassroots group working for excellent schools and not a hedge fund front group pushing private schools. The report also revealed that one of the directors, now listen to this one, one of the directors of this dark money, hedge money uh, group that wants to push charter schools is a James Pieser who is the Massachusetts State Superintendent of Education. So they've grabbed the top man. They've taken over the bureaucracy. Uh, for, For ordinary people in New York who are worried about public education, it was a shock. Why should the public official responsible for the maintenance and improvement of public schools serve on the board of an organisation dedicated to privatising public schools? Pazer holds the same position as Horace Mann. He should be embarrassed. And Horace Mann, of course, was a very famous public school man. He should be embarrassed and the people of Massachusetts should be absolutely outraged. So just bear in mind that the push for privatisation is occurring in Massachusetts. That is far and away the best performing state school system in the United States. And the expansion of the charter sector will undermine public education and divide communities. FES should be ashamed. Why don't they take their millions and open health clinics for poor children? So that is what I've found on the Diane Ravitch blog site, where in the United States, which is more decentralised than we have been in Australia, and their decentralised system has been in part imposed upon us, in one of the proudest public systems in the world, 
which had as its top administrator one of the founding fathers of public education in the United States. There's been a takeover. Well, there was a takeover in Victoria, I believe, uh, back in the 1980s when a gentleman whose children went to private schools became the um, head of the education department. His name was Mr Collins and he was appointed by Joan Kerner. And Joan Kerner, bless her cotton-picking socks, um, perhaps I should say bless her soul nowadays, um, but Joan Kerner had been a public school advocate but she had a price when she went on the Schools Commission back in 1973. And um, in those days, the minister, who was a gentleman called Beasley, yes, it's, it's the, it was the father of the one that perhaps you know, the recent, um, recent uh, diplomat in New York, uh, the father worked out that Joan Kerner had a price and uh, she sold out the state school lobby uh, and she then went over to the needs policy and became against state aid and caused the dog's untold trouble in the dog's case. But that is another story. Uh, It is a great pity when your administration of your public schools uh, which is a centralised administration, should be a centralised administration, should back up the children, the teachers and the uh, principals of the system. It is a tragedy when it is taken over by people who are not only not committed in word and deed to the public system, but are committed in word and deed to the alternative opposing system. And this is what they're now discovering in the United States, but it's been happening in Australia for a long time. And if you complained in days gone by, you were labelled sectarian. Um, But the dogs are not frightened of being labelled anything. We're here to tell the truth of the matter. Now, that's enough for me for the moment. We'll have a little bit of music and then Dale will give you our press release 633. Thank you. 
themselves have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. You're listening to 3CR, 855 on the AM dial. This is the Dogs Program, and you've just been listening to some Handel, uh, played by the Brandenburg Consort. But uh, we're now going to turn to Dale, who will read you our press release 633, which you will find on our website at www.adogs.info. Thanks, Jean. Uh, yeah, here's the press release entitled Malcolm Turnbull, Same Vinegar in a Glossy Bottle. Tony Abbott's $30 billion cut to schools locked in. The 15th of December Mid-Year Economic and Fiscal Outlook, or MIEFO, confirms that Malcolm Turnbull has locked in Tony Abbott's $30 billion cuts to schools. Public education supporters should note that this figure includes cuts to the fifth and sixth years of the Gonski reform. Malcolm Turnbull's talk about being smart and innovative remains just that, talk. For him, the smarts don't begin at school, or certainly not with the majority of Australian children who attend public schools. As Trevor Cobold from Save Our Schools noted on December 11th, Given that Australia's international test results in mathematics and science have fallen in recent years, it is somewhat bewildering that the Turnbull government's innovation statement released on Monday virtually ignores school education. The statement says that ensuring students have the skills to equip them for the workforce of the 21st century is critical in maximising Australia's productivity and ensuring economic and social well-being in an increasingly STEM-based and digital economy. However, it proposes spending a miserly extra $100 million on school education over five years from 2016 to 2017, comprising $48 million on prizes and competitions in science and mathematics and $51 million on digital literacy programs. The proposed increase is farcical. It amounts to only $20 million a year or $54 per student a year. It represents only 1% of the increase in Gonski funding planned by the Gillard Rudd governments over three years, over the three years from 2016 to 2017 and 2018 to 2019. It will do little to reverse Australia's declining maths and science results. Trevor Cobold. Well, there you are. As well as that, uh, on, that was on December the 16th, but on December the 15th, the AEU uh, had a very interesting uh, media release in which they also pointed out that there have been broken policy, promises on school disability funding and this represents a betrayal of students. 
So we're discovering that Mr Turnbull is... Uh, well, I don't think Mr Turnbull knows anything about public education or children, actually. Uh, Mr Turnbull grew up in the eastern suburbs of Sydney and uh, he claims that his uh, parents sacrificed for him to go to Cranbrook. And uh, he's always regarded himself not only as elite, as an elite member of the Cranbrook set, but the creme de la creme uh, of the elite. So make no mistake about Mr Turnbull. As an ex-Sydney girl, I, um, I have my own view of the Turnbulls of this world. So even considering or thinking about um, children with disabilities, uh, he might make nice noises and smile sweetly, um, about this because he's a pretty good media expert having learned his skills under the packers but um, uh, I'm afraid he's let them down very badly and his education minister Simon Birmingham has failed to explain how the funding for the disability um, children will be delivered and last me- week's meeting of state and territory education ministers actually failed to address the issue. Now, listeners, since the 1980s, the most excellent system of special schools here in Victoria has been gutted so that children with disabilities could be integrated into the mainstream schooling. Now, for some children, integration is the answer. It's a wonderful idea, but you can't do it unless you put money into it. And back in the day, back in the 1980s, it was um, costed at $54 million. It was introduced with $4 million and I think it was um, it, it later got something like $19 million, but it's never been properly funded and it places a terrible burden upon mainstream teachers mm. to have children with disabilities in their classes, particularly if these disabilities uh, are related to behaviour problems. So... Uh, this is a very real issue uh, for ordinary parents as well as ch- for parents of children with disabilities. And we know that there's a huge unmet need in the system and we need the Education Minister Simon Birmingham to show leadership and deliver promised funding. Despite five years of data collection and repeated promises by the Federal Government that extra funding would go to schools from 2016... Australia is no closer to getting the extra resources that schools, particularly public schools, that enrol most of the children with disability, Mm. need. These continued delays are hurting some of the most vulnerable students in Australia and preventing them from getting the education they need. And it's also placing extra burdens upon teachers in classrooms. So the nationality, nationally sorry, consistent collection of data for disability for 2015 found this. 12.5% of students need supplementary, substantial or extensive support mm. compared with only 5.3% per students, of students that are currently getting funded support. And that finding's backed by data collection from previous years and the Australian Bureau of Statistics. So the numbers are there and the politicians have ignored them in the same way 
as they have again and again ignored the needs of children in our public schools. So we don't have a lack of data. We have a lack of political will to ensure students with disability can get the education they deserve. Properly funding students with disabilities is a key part of the Gonski reforms and it's critical for ensuring that schools can meet the needs of all of their students. And that's why disability loading to deliver schools the resources they needed for disability and meet unmet need in the system was a recommendation of the Gonski Review and it was bipartisan policy at the 2013 federal election. Even Education Minister Christopher Pine said in June this year that from 2016 every child in Australia with disability will be able to receive the correct loading as they should to match their disability. But it hasn't happened. (laughs) So in this area, it's not just that we've got the same vinegar in a new bottle, we've got sour vinegar in the same bottle with Minister Birmingham. Birmingham promised it, but he hasn't delivered. So I think that this has to be um, said and we have to try and do something about it. Well, this is all very sad, but we'll have a little break for some more music and we'll come back with some good news.
Arts Express Summer Season, Valerie Fafala and Trish Posterino are running four special programs on Australian women in jazz. First of all, we'll hear from jazz drummer and organiser of the Melbourne Women in Jazz Festival, Sonia Horbelt. Then contemporary violinist Zani Kolak, sax player Angela Davis, pianist and composer Andrea Keller and stunning jazz vocalist Bridget Allen. They'll be performing their music for our listeners either live in the 3CR studio or with their CDs. We'll also look at the history and experiences of jazz women in the traditionally male arena of jazz in Melbourne, how they became heard in the competitive field, working alongside other male and female musicians for the love of jazz. Our special dates for Australian women in jazz are Thursday, December the 17th, Thursday, January the 7th, 21st and 28th of 2016 at 10.30am till 11am on Thursday. So don't forget to tune in. We resume Arts Express in February 2016. Buy a ticket in the 3CR Summer Radiothon Raffle. And not only will you be supporting independent radio, but you could be in the running to win a new bike kindly donated by Reed Cycles. Reed Cycles have stores in North Melbourne, Windsor and Collingwood. Check out their website, reedcycles.com.au. Call the station now on 94198377 to get your tickets. Reed Cycles is a 3CR supporter. Well, there was Dame Emma Kirkby singing some more Handel uh, with the Brandenburg uh, Orchestra or the Brandenburg Consort, I should say. And you're listening to 3CR... 8.55 on the AM dial and this is the DOGS program, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools. Now before the break we promised you a bit of good news and I can tell you that the court, the federal court, has ordered 37 million back pay for Victorian teachers because the teachers in Victoria were being uh, charged for their computers. Listen to this. Um, they're going to receive the back payment from the state government after unlawful deductions were made from their wages for laptop computers. How mean can you get? <laughs> what a way to treat your workforce. Mm. <laughs> laptop computers are essential equipment for teachers and principals, said Meredith Peace, president of the AEU Victoria, and this was a matter that we had to pursue because expecting teachers to pay out of their own pockets for a computer that they use to write school reports, communicate with parents and other teachers and plan lessons is absolutely unfair. We must attract and retain the best teachers and principals in our public school system and providing them with the equipment they need to support the learning and welfare of all students is essential. The federal court found that the Victorian government had made unlawful deductions from teachers and principal salaries in contravention of the Fair Work Act by requiring them to pay for access to the education department's laptops directly out of wages. So they're going to be repaid by the 24th of December 2015. 
and they'll also receive, oh, this is good stuff, a 5% interest payment. So Victorian public school teachers will get um, a bit of a Christmas present for all the hard work that they have done this year. And former employees who participated in the program will have their repayments made by the 31st of March 2016. So that means that 50,000 teachers and principals will receive the recompense they deserve for having these deductions made from their salary and ensure that nothing like this happens in the future. So congratulations to the Victorian uh, AEU for taking that to court on behalf of their members and getting a win. Now we have also uh, an interesting uh, sector that's going to be uh, read by Dale. You might remember that last week we talked about that young girl from Ravenswood in Sydney who had her say about her school on the last day. And the Guardian online in Australia asked their uh, some of their journalists to give their idea what they would like to say about their schooling. There were four who had something to say and we have chosen the ones or one of them went to a public school and another one sent his children to public school after having attended a private school himself. So we've been telling you and I have to tell you again to please my caller from this week that Public schools are great schools and they are the best schools and here we have two people saying the same thing. Thanks, Jean. Yeah, the uh, Guardian Australia uh, had their writers look back at their last days at school and what they'd like to say to their teachers, mentors and fellow students now if they had the chance. If they haven't already, Australian schools are closing this week for the end of the school year. There are farewells to be had, reflections to be sought, speeches to be made. Some will be full of praise. Some will, like the one from outgoing Captain Sarah Haynes at Ravenswood School in Sydney, be a lot more contentious. Well, she writes to have a go. And if you are older, maybe wiser, what would you tell your school if you had the chance now? Guardian writers go back in time to say goodbye once more. Van Batam, my school never demanded perfection. To Port Hacking High School, Miranda, in New South Wales. At my interview to attend PHHS, the then Deputy Principal, Mr Jones, leaned back in his chair after a couple of cursory questions and said, at Port Hacking High School, we believe everyone is good at something. It may be maths... It may be English. It may just be being a really good friend. And we see our role here as to find out what you're good at and help you to do it. I was 16, rebellious, and I'd been kicked out of a state selective high school in a fireball meteor of resistance to conformity. I'd been failing subjects for years, skipping class for days at a time, and after the last altercation with authority devolved into a swearing match with the principal, I thought my education was finished. Port Hacking, the co-ed, the co-ed comprehensive down the road, was the school of last resort. Thank God for that. 
Mr Jones's pledge was a sincere one. My entire cohort of new teachers, nurtured by talents with patience and kindness, both eager and equipped to coax out the discouragement I internalised from my previous schools. Whatever I have subsequently achieved in my life, the most significant achievement was the turnaround of my academic performance at Port Hacking High. Miss Giordano, the English teacher, Miss Jackson, the art teacher, Mr Jakes, the modern history teacher, and yes, even you, Mr Anthonis, in ancient history, even you. I live my life empowered with the daily gratitude that I attended a school that served all its students so nobly. My education was rigorous, detailed and inspirational, and the skills of intellectual self-motivation and self-reliance I learned at Port Hacking have served me lifelong. My school never demanded perfection. It never asked me for anything. It gave knowledge, encouragement and pride. Such is the mission of public education. I think anyone sending their child to a private school should seek better investment advice. And another response was from Mike Tisha. P.S. Shame about the insecurity and immaturity. Just as you have to stop blaming your parents at a certain age, there comes a time when you can't pin every misfortune in life on what happened at school. But not just yet. Addressing my school-leaving peers would come a long way down on my time travel to-do list, just below killing baby Hitler. But if pressed, my message would be about entitlement. I went to a moderately posh private school on the outskirts of London from the age of 11. To my knowledge, no one raped or tortured any boys, needless to say they were all boys, or even administered official corporal punishment. But it was a complacent, self-satisfied place. It assumed a lazy kind of conformity in its privileged pupils. I don't think I felt the need to force values on us. I don't think it felt the need to force values on us or even demand extreme academic effort. If anything, it assumed a lazy kind of conformity in its privileged pupils. I nurtured quiet contempt, leaving with high exam scores and equally high levels of insecurity and immaturity. Now that my own children have had the benefit of an Australian public education... I would like to tell my long-forgotten peers about that distant world of public education, one that, in my experience, effectively instills values of tolerance and respect for difference, as well as academic achievement. A bit ragged around the edges, perhaps, and not nearly as picky about neatly worn uniforms, but a much better primer for real life than my narrow institution but I don't think they'd be too keen to hear about it. Well, there you are. There are two people who've had various experiences of our great system of public education. And in spite of uh, the lack of political will amongst our leaders and in spite of the um, opposition of religious men, some of whom are coming a bit apart at the seams with hearts that... Well, we wonder about their hearts, <coughs> don't we, this week? Um, yes, in spite of all of this, our public schools are still great schools. And, uh, yes, I think those of us who have been given the opportunity 
to have a public education understand that the world is a very big place of many, many different people and we have to learn to live together. Mm. Otherwise, on this planet Earth, we'll sink together. So um, that's us. That's us for today, and we hope we, you enjoyed this uh, this program, and that you'll be back with us next week at twelve noon. And perhaps we might be able to persuade Robert to come and join us next week because he's very busy at the moment. So that's bye for now. And uh, yes, if you want to find out more about us, go to our website at www.adox.info. Pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. 
Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit. Our education is not for profit. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. In the Arts Express summer season, Valerie Farfalla and Trish Posterino are running four special programs on Australian women in jazz. First of all, we'll hear from jazz drummer and organiser of the Melbourne Women in Jazz Festival, Sonia Horbelt. Then contemporary violinist Zani Kolak, sax player Angela Davis, pianist and composer Andrea Keller and stunning jazz vocalist Bridget Allen. They'll be performing their music for our listeners either live in the 3CR studio or with their CDs. We'll also look at the history and experiences of jazz women in the traditionally male arena of jazz in Melbourne, how they became heard in the competitive field, working alongside other male and female musicians for the love of jazz. Our special dates for Australian women in jazz are Thursday, December the 17th, Thursday, January the 7th, 21st and 28th of 2016 at 10.30am till 11am on Thursday, so don't forget to tune in. We resume Arts Express in February 2016. Buy a ticket in the 3CR Summer Radiothon Raffle. And not only will you be supporting independent radio, but you could be in the running to win a new bike kindly donated by Reed Cycles. Reed Cycles have stores in North Melbourne, Windsor and Collingwood. Check out their website, reedcycles.com.au. Call the station now on 9419 8377 to get your tickets. Reed Cycles is a 3CR supporter. 